my favorite restaurant in London was a, a place called the Texas Embassy Cantina. And it, it actually stood in downtown London about three doors down from the original embassy of the Republic of Texas, which lasted for about six years. Well, one interesting thing, uh, besides of the history or the proximity of the, of the restaurant, that you could get Tex-Mex that actually was cooked in ovens that they actually brought over to London from Texas, all right, was the fact that this restaurant occupied the former office of White Star Lines, which, as you may know, was the um, company uh, for which the Titanic um, uh, uh, sailed for. And, and so on April, in fact, in the, in the restroom, they had a newspaper, the original newspaper uh, on the wall from April uh, the 15th, 1912, when the Titanic went down. You may know the basic story, but on the night, late night of April 14th, um, the Titanic on its maiden voyage hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic, and then two hours and 40 minutes later, early in the, the days, uh, early in the hours of April the 15th, the ship sunk, killing more than 1,500 of its passengers and crew of a total of 2,224 people. Now, on that, 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 that ship, which was really one of the greatest uh, civilian maritime um, tragedies, there were a number of different kinds of people, very different classes of folks on that ship. Some of the richest people in the world were on that maiden voyage. And there were also hundreds of poor immigrants from Northern Europe and, and Scotland and Ireland who were also on board seeking a better life in the United States. So you had Captain Edward Smith of the unsinkable ship, and you had his crew. You had American millionaire John Jacob Astor IV, uh, along with a number of Scottish and Irish immigrants. They all went down together. And that's the point that Paul is making here in these first couple chapters of his letter to the Romans. That is, we are all going down together as human beings. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a Jew or a Gentile or a moralist, like a, a religious person here in church, or whether, whether you're just a pagan out there. Okay, we are all going down together. And we need a Savior. Now, last week, we looked at the first two verses of Romans 3 and, and answered, Paul answered the question, well, what advantage then if, if, if the Jews are no better than anybody else, right? And if they're all going down as well and they need to be saved from their sins, what advantage is it in being a Jew? And he answers that by saying much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the, the very words of God. And we, we talked about that last week, the, the benefit of the word of God. That is, it tells us all about who God is, his nature and his work and his plan in human history. But then Paul engages here in a little apologetics. And it can be a little bit hard to untangle if you just kind of read, do a speed read through verses 3 through 8, what all Paul is getting at if you just cruise through it. So I want us to spend a little bit of time this morning considering each of these questions that Paul asks and then 
the answer. And I would encourage you high school students to specifically listen carefully because it could be in just a couple years you may find yourself in a, in a secular college going through philosophy 101 in which it's very possible that you may find yourself in a room with a philosophy professor that thinks that they have some objections that could destroy your Christianity. So I hope that you'll be able to think and maybe even say to your professor, thank you, ma'am, or thank you, sir, respectfully. I've heard these before. Thank you for being concerned about my faith uh, and the plausibility of it. Um, but actually, there's nothing new under the sun. You see, these questions that people have have been considered and dealt with and answered throughout the ages by people like St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, St. Anselm, the Reformers, Francis Schaeffer, C.S. Lewis, Rabbi Zacharias, and many other apologists that are even living today. But did you know that these objections that some of these philosopher professors may try to throw at you are actually listed out in the Bible. And we just read them this morning with answers. So Paul made, he anticipated these common Jewish objections, and then he gave us answers. And as we mentioned last week, these may have been Paul's own objections as a Jew to the Christian faith before he met Jesus that day on the road to Damascus. So, um, so these, are, these are some real questions that Paul anticipated his audience, the Jews in Rome who'd be reading this, of having. And so he, he, he phrases them out and then he answers them. So let's look at the very first objection. And I've got these listed for you in, in your listening guide, which you'll find inside your, your bulletin. Um, so you can, you can look back and, and kind of remember how we have these um, separated out. So the very first objection Paul asks was in verse 3. And he's talking about the Jews. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's his answer. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So what, what exactly is this objection? Pastor Kent Hughes explains it. He writes, this is a strange objection that argues essentially, Paul, how can you possibly say we Jews have so completely failed in our privileged position and still insist that we're an advantaged people? If we have failed as you insist, God's word is powerless and he is unfaithful. End quote. In other words, God's plan was to call together a, a people to be holy, but if they failed, then God must have failed in his plan. Well, my initial response to that is, uh, you are thinking too highly of yourselves, that you are the very center of God's plan, and that his faithfulness depends on your faithfulness. You see, God's plan doesn't ultimately depend on the faithfulness of mankind. Now, I'm actually substituting the word mankind for the Jews here because, frankly, none of us who are non-Jew, we may have some Jewish folks here, but for those of us, the majority of us who are not, we're no better than the Jews. I mean, we would have whined had we been there in the desert, I promise you. We would have been influenced by immorality 
and even blasphemy by the pagan nations around us, because are we not influenced by pagan ideas that surround us now? We would even have rejected our Messiah, too. The only reason that we don't reject Jesus right now is because of his grace. So the center of God's plan is not people's faithfulness. The center of God's plan is the cross of Jesus Christ. And actually the prerequisite for the cross wasn't man's faithfulness, but man's unfaithfulness. Does that make sense? So here's Paul's answer to the question, is God no longer faithful because people fail? Does the sin and the unfaithfulness of his chosen people mean that God failed in his purpose? Paul says, absolutely not. God is always true no matter how much people fail him and no matter how much people fail each other. In fact, John Calvin quoted God, the, the four words that Paul writes here, let God be true. He considered that, those four words to be the axiom of all Christian philosophy, that God is always true. Now Paul quotes David in Psalm 51, his words of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba when he was unfaithful, affirming God's faithfulness even when his people fail. So that's how Paul answers that question. Psalm 51 verse 4, Paul cry, or David cried out, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I have a Bible at home that was given to me by Beth's brother. Um, he lives in Armenia, and he brought me this, when he came last, this really cool uh, car. It's got this beautifully carved wooden cover. And the translation is actually the good news translation, good news version. And that, I've never actually really read it much, but actually now that I, I've got that Bible, I've kind of been thumbing through it a little bit more. And it's what we would call a dynamic equivalent, okay? Um, for study and for primary reference, I recommend things like the ESV, or some of you even like the King James Version or New King James Version or New American Standard. These are what we call textual equivalents, where you have a very, um, you know, a very careful word-for-word -word translation of the Hebrew and the Greek. But sometimes it's kind of nice to read through dynamic equivalent translations that, that give you a little more flavor. And for texts that if you just read the wooden word-for-word -word translation, you may get a little bit lost, okay? It, 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 inherent in any Bible translation is a bit of interpretation, okay? And so, so interpret, or translators do the very best with, with, uh, with the language, with, with, you know, there's a lot of tools to ensure... Um, a fidelity to the, to the text, but the dynamic equivalents um, explain a little bit more. So let me read to you from the Good News Translation, because I, I believe that they, they, they nailed this properly. They got it right here, okay? Um, so the way the Good News Translation translates verse 4, Paul's answer, is by saying, certainly not. God must be true, even though every human being is a liar. As the Scripture says, you must be shown to be right when you speak, you must win your case when you are being tried. That's to God. Okay, now of course, no one can truly try God in court. But in a sense, people do this all the time. And, and God's justice and his righteousness is and will be 
vindicated. Now this objection, this first objection that Paul raises that, that God somehow failed because in his plan, because his, his people failed to properly follow him and worship him, it reminds me of a, another question that I've heard, um, one from a friend of mine named Mike, who used to sit in, in, a, in, in, a, in a church like, like we are this morning and for many years called himself a Christian and has walked away from the faith. Okay, so he knows the theology, but now he is a skeptic, all right? And, and so one of his objections to me has been, yeah, I get that sin and its resultant suffering are the fault of the bad decisions of man's free will, starting with Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, they truly had, they had free wills that were not encumbered by sinful natures. And yet they made the, ro the wrong decision. They rebelled against God. And basically you can backtrace our suffering to that. But here's Mike's objection. But couldn't God have set the whole thing up better? How can a good God ever allow evil to creep into his creation when he has the power to stop it? Now this is a question that philosophers call the prima facie case for the non-existence of God. That's one variant of it. Basically it's saying, hey, if God were truly good, he would hate evil. If he were truly powerful, he would stop evil. Evil exists, so therefore the biblical God must not. That's the argument. Now there's a big problem in the argument itself. And that is we're setting up a, a matrix that we think we can contain God by, right? You have, to, you have to do it the way we would do it, God. And here is the answer. You see, we only see a limited picture. Remember, God is eternal. We looked at that last week. God sees the end from the beginning all at the same time. The bottom line is that God receives greater glory in the failing of humanity because his grace and his redemption and his judgments are manifest as a result of our sin. You see, if, we had, if, if Adam and Eve hadn't rebelled in the garden, there would be no grace for us to look back in eternity future, if you want to put it that way, and sing God's praises for, right? And we certainly wouldn't see God's power and his great righteousness in his judgment. And so God receives greater glory even as a result of our weakness and our failings. Uh, and, and his grace is made manifest in redemption because there would be no cross. There would be no redemption if mankind had not rebelled. So unlike us in our limited bandwidth, right? God ordains things that actually brings him pain for his greater glory. Nothing caused God greater pain than the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet it was his plan for the beginning, from the beginning. You, that's beyond uh, the way our wills or our minds would operate. So be assured that God certainly hates evil more than you or I do, and he will eradicate it for eternity. So at the end of the day, our unfaithfulness should remind us of God's faithfulness, for he is the standard of faithfulness. 
And brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Though often we fail in our commitments, God never fails in his promises. So we should be careful to never blame God for our sin. You know, this whole prima facie case for the existence of evil, it's really trying to get ourselves off the hook and blame God instead of ourselves for our sin. Instead of blaming God, we should flee to the Savior for forgiveness and cleansing. And that faithfulness of God, despite their faithfulness, is wonderful Jews, uh, sorry, is wonderful news for the Jews. And Paul's actually going to talk about this more when we get to Romans chapter 9, God's plan and his future plan for Israel. Okay, so let's talk about, let's look at objection number two, which really kind of follows from objection number one in terms of logical progression. So look at verse five, objection number two. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? So again, this question really follows from the first question. And, and what Paul's saying here is, how can God be just and righteous if he used the failure of the Jews for, his great, for the greater good of his glory to demonstrate his righteousness? All right, so how can God be righteous for using people who fail? And this is very close to the modern question that would say God is not fair. If you say he is really sovereign, like truly meticulously sovereign over all, then aren't we just lab rats trapped in a maze? Another angle to that question might be if we inherit our sinful natures, how can God be right in blaming us for sinning? I don't know if you've heard that one before, or maybe you've thought that one before. Well, my, my answer, this is my answer, which is not as great as Paul's, okay? But my answer would be something that philosophers call the law of limited inferences. That means you have to differentiate between primary causes and secondary causes, and the primary uh, responsibility is always laid on the primary cause. So example, let's say you're in school and high school literature and you're reading Macbeth, okay? Who do you get mad at for King Duncan's death? Who do you blame? Do you blame Macbeth and Lady Macbeth for murdering Duncan? Or do you blame Shakespeare, the author, all right? Well, you could certainly say that Shakespeare, it's his fault. I mean, he is sovereign over the whole thing, right? I mean, he, he's the author of this, of this play. But as you're, as you're looking at this, as you're reading this, this story, you blame the characters who make these decisions of their own will. Well, God's providence may indeed be thought of as a secondary cause, but our sinful will is the primary cause of our sinful action, and the primary causer is the one who gets the blame. In other words, we sin because we choose to sin, and we like sinning, and it is our fault that we sin. In fact, the Bible is clear that God never tempts anyone to sin. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God is not the primary cause or even the one who would tempt us to sin. We're tempted by our inward, sinful, lustful desires. Now Paul answers a kind of a similar question, and we're going we're gonna to expound on this at length later when we get to Romans chapter 9. But let me just read Paul's answer in Romans 9 to a very similar question. Romans 9, verses 17 through 20. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, so here's the question. But will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's Paul's answer to the questioner. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's what he says. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? So that, that's Paul's answer later. We might not like it, but that's Paul's answer later. But I want you to remember, this was the question at hand. Okay, how can God be just and righteous if he uses the sin or the failure or the, the unfaithfulness of, of humans for the greater good of his glory? Well, Paul doesn't give my answer, which I think is philosophically a, a satisfying answer, but he doesn't give my answer and he doesn't even give the answer that he gives later in Romans chapter 9. Here he makes an interesting argument based on a core Jewish tenet. So let me read again the um, verse 6 in the Good News translation, which is a little simpler to understand. He says, By no means, if God is not just, how can he judge the world? You see, the central tenet of Judaism, the, the, everything that, the, the thing that it, everything, the whole package hinged upon was that God will judge the world. That there is a just God. And God is the just judge who will judge all mankind and make everything right in the end. The, the, uh, all of Judaism hung on that. So J Paul is talking to Jews. And so the, here's the logic of Paul's answer, okay? He says, God can't judge the world unless he is just. Of course he's just then, okay? And if you can't fully understand that, you need to stop trying to sit in judgment of God, and you need to remember that it's not your place to judge God. That's basically what Paul's, what Paul's saying here. You don't have the right, or even frankly the bandwidth, to sit in judgment of God. God is the definition of justice, and he will judge all humanity one day. Now this kind of leads to another point that I think it might be good for us to reflect on for a moment. And that is, as much as folks today in our own culture think that they don't want an ultimate judge, they want an ultimate judge. Okay? I mean, they do. We, we think we don't really want, let's get rid of God because, you know, we all have guilt, right? And, hey, the, you know, t t you shouldn't feel guilty. I mean, you know, you're, 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 you know, we need to empower humanity, and so let's get rid of the judge. That's kind of a lot of the motivation behind um, atheism today. 
But the bottom line is people want a judge because all of us are wired to want justice. There has got to be an answer to the Holocaust. There's got to be an answer. There's got to be justice for the atrocious things that ISIS has done in our lifetime. Well, we saw something like this. We saw some justice just a week ago with the death of a very evil man named al-Baghdadi. And God used our nation. He used our armed forces and our defense personnel and intelligence personnel to bring about his justice against one of the most depraved men the world has ever known. Okay, now, that might sound kind of strange uh, to you sitting here hearing a pastor talking about the fact that, hey, the killing of a guy is a good thing. Okay, in fact, there, many of my brothers uh, in Europe would never say such a thing because they're pacifists, all right? Um, but here's, here's the deal. The Bible teaches that vigilantism is wrong. Okay, we, we, saw, a, we saw a horrible uh, injustice. Uh, we were reading it on the news daily or weekly several years ago when this group called ISIS popped up in Iraq and in Syria and in some other places where they were inflicting terrorism in places where they weren't running the show and where they were running the show. They were abducting innocent people and doing horrendous things to them. Okay, we, we saw it on the front pages. Americans, um, a, a Jordanian pilot, um, tortured to death in, in very, very cruel ways. And there was a lot going on that we didn't even hear about. Um, some, of the most, uh, some of the worst persecution that Christians have ever faced in the history of the world happened just recently in the Middle East at the hands of ISIS. And as much as that revolted me, it would have been wrong for me to, to have a, taken a gun and have gone down to the Army and Navy store and bought some, some used camouflage and to get a, a plane or a boat ticket over there to fight, this, to fight these people, okay? I am not God's ordained servant for um, bringing about justice, but governments are. And so God has appointed governments to bear the sword. And a number of you are a part of that and have spent your life being a part of that, helping our government bear a sword against injustice. And so as Christians, we, th there can be a fine line between vigilantism or even vengeance, a desire for vengeance and a desire for justice. And that can be hard to tease out and to know. And so one of the ways that I've just kind of looked at it in my own life is ask the question, could I be pleased and thankful and even praise God if al-Baghdadi became a Christian? Okay? And if the answer, if the honest answer is no, if I would be upset if God saved him, then my heart is full of vengeance. Okay? It, so, so I'd have to rejoice. But can I and should I rejoice that justice has been done and that such a blight against God's justice has been removed from this earth? Yes. That can be biblical justice. You see, all people long for justice because there is a judge. All right, uh, let's talk about objection number three, verse seven through eight. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us of saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, Paul's saying, here's the argument, hey, if our sin actually works out to make God look good, okay, I'll, I'll do my favor. I'm just going to keep sinning. In fact, I'm going to do it in spectacular fashion. Well, Paul's detractors accused Paul's message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone as having this very implication that, hey, if it's not by the works of the law, um, you're saying then it's okay to go out there and, and just sin big time. And Christian, Protestants in particular have been accused of this uh, throughout the last few centuries. And frankly, sometimes we've been guilty of what I'll call an antinomian attitude. And that, that is an attitude of, of maybe taking advantage or abusing grace and saying, hey, he'll forgive me. I can kind of do what I want all week and I'll just kind of go forward on Sunday morning and confess my sins, right? And, and get good with God. Or, or hey, I'm just going to, I'm going to have a cognitive faith, cognitive belief in, in God and do life as I please. And in the end, before I take the bucket, I'm going to, you know, say the prayer and, and ask him to forgive me and all will be well. Okay? Kind of this concept of cheap grace. So that's, that's the question. That's the accusation. And here basically Paul says, this accusation is so ridiculous, I'm not going to give you an answer. Those who accuse me of this will be condemned. Okay, now, again, in, in uh, our translation, maybe you're looking at the ESV and you read, their condemnation is just. And without understanding the context, it might seem to you like he's saying their condemnation, meaning their accusation is just. That's not what Paul's saying here. What he's saying is they will be condemned as they should be, these people who are raising this crazy accusation against me. So he doesn't actually answer it here. But he does later in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 2, in which he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And we're going to expose that. We're going to unpack that later. We've got to wait a couple months until we get to Romans chapter 6. But I'll give you just a, a teaser answer Verse 12 through 14 of Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." As we land the plane this morning, people have all kinds of arguments against Christianity. But deep down in their soul, in their heart, they know that God is real. And they know that they are guilty before the judge. So help them see that we are all going down as humanity together. We're all on the Titanic together and it is going down but there is good news there is a savior you know those few hundred who were saved from the titanic disaster they were rescued by a ship called the rms carpathia 
picked up 710 survivors of the Titanic. No one who, who actually went down into the ICCs who stayed in the water more than 15 minutes survived. They were dragged into lifeboats. A lot of those people were hypothermic when the Carpathia showed up. Um, and none of them would have been able to survive there in the icy North Atlantic without that ship coming to save them. So remember that Jesus Christ, he is the captain of your rescue ship, okay? You don't get to ask Jesus to come on board your boat, okay, and to sit with you and hang out with you and, and get the benefits uh, of Jesus. No, you, you get on, you're dying, you're going down. All of us are going down. We get on his boat, and that means that we bow the knee to him as Lord, as Savior, as King. Jesus is King. That means he defines your reality, his definitions of reality and of truth and justice become your definitions. He speaks and you follow. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would give us confidence in the truth of your word and confidence in your justice and in your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, that your, justin, your justice, while it does declare that we're guilty, is not separate from your love and your grace, and that you, in your providence, from eternity past, decided to send Jesus Christ, willed to send God the Son to come and die on the cross for us. So I pray, I pray for anybody here in this room who doesn't yet know him, that today would be the day in which they climb into his boat, that they repent of their sins and, and just cling to him as Savior and as King. And Lord, I also want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world um, we join them today in, in praying for, for, for uh, your help in their day of persecution. Lord, we pray for those who live in, live in places where they don't have the freedoms that we enjoy. Lord, we pray that they would sense your presence with them. Lord, we pray that they would even be able to sense today that we are praying for them. Lord, may they experience your comfort and may you open doors for them for evangelism, even in their persecution. And Father, I pray that they would boldly share the gospel. And as I pray for them, I've got to pray for us that we would boldly share the gospel, even if that means scorn. Father, I pray that they would mature in their faith and be granted wisdom, as many of these folks who are not incarcerated um, have to work covertly in ministry. Lord, may they remain joyful amid suffering. I pray that you would help them uh, and help us to forgive and to love their persecutors. And I pray that they would indeed be rooted in your word. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.